Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, this is Sean McCraney. I'm with Heart of the Matter, and you are about to watch a great show. We are so lucky to be on the air. This past week, we've been on the air, off the air. I know you've witnessed it for unexplicable reasons. We've gone off. They've had technical difficulties. All the powers that be are seeking to stop all the shows on KTMW TV 20 from going forth, but they're not stronger than the Lord or a very wise uh, manager who knows technical issues, and so we've got it all uh, taken care of and glad you're here. Heart in the Church, last Sunday night we met at Provo Baptist Church, Pastor Neil. It was a fantastic experience. The, the room was uh, filled to overflowing. We had a good hour and a half talk. We had a Q&A, uh, we had food, we had a great time, and we challenge any of you, if you want to uh, bring heart of the matter into your home or into your church, to just email us and we'll get on it and set it up. They're really going well. And speaking of that, we have a few more of those coming up. Um, we have a heart uh, in the uh, home this coming Monday in Wellsville. You can go to the internet and you can find out where that's at. We're also going to be in Nampa, Idaho on, on February 11th at 7 a.m. at the Nampa Civic Center. 7 p.m. at the Nampa Civic Center. So we invite you, if you're in the Boise area or watching online right now and live in that vicinity, to please join us. We have a bunch of shout-outs, and we mean them from the bottom of our heart, and let's get into it. Gianni, Ashley and Brenda, Brent and Betty, Alan and Linda, Anna C., Dale and Jerry, Brother Dennis H., John H., has come to know the Lord, told me a story, great story, keep going, John, David, Julian, Suzanne, Buddy, Jim, Reed, U.S. Military, U.S. Army, Fort Hood, Texas, who watches Lori and Wally Matucci, and their daughter, Nicole, we just love all of you, we thank you for your prayers, we thank you for your support. Church Scouts, of course, we're going to recommend this week, none other than Provo Baptist Church, we visited there met the pastor and his wife. It's a great place right there on Center Street in Provo, Utah. And uh, it should be filled with people who are learning, uh, wanting to know the Lord and to learn His Word. I highly recommend it. I myself was able to visit. And then also there's a few other churches that visited there with us, and we're going to recommend them as our church scouts get there. Hope Baptist Church, Faith Baptist Church uh, in Spanish Fork, all of those good. But we're going to continue and give you their addresses later. All right. You are looking at a dinosaur right now. A dinosaur. I'm going to this camera. Born-again Mormon, moving toward Christian authenticity. We are in our last 300 copies of 2,500. 2,500 copies have uh, been sent out or sold. And this is, we're at the last 300. You are more than uh, willing to order this. Uh, it is, comes very uniquely because it has no page numbers by design. I wanted it to be different. And uh, the print is small, difficult to read, but it's the original form. We're coming out with a second edition and it's going to be a bit different. Uh, chopped up in some areas, bigger font, page numbers, everything that bookstores want. But this one was a unique uh, venture. And so we want to tell you that's the last 300 left. If you want one of those, go to our website at www.bornagainmormon.com. You can order it there. You can email us if you don't have funds, and we will send one out to you free of charge. DVDs, many of you are asking and emailing and uh, sending us orders for the DVD of the Sandra Tanner uh, when she was on the show, a great show, 90-minute DVD. Those are getting uh, ready to go out. 
We're also going to have on the website the 2006 DVDs. And now for the great announcement. You've long waited. You've wanted to know when it was coming. Well, it's coming. The Heart of the Matter shirt and the official shirt is a Howdy Partner shirt. Of course, it comes in three colors, black, black, or black. It comes in sizes, small, medium, large, extra large, and then single X, double X, triple X, of course. And uh, you can get those on the website, too. If you're interested, just go to the TV show, click on it. You'll see a little T-shirt there, black, with the, uh, with the Howdy Partner insignia across the chest. And, boy, you could be proud we're wearing that out in the public. And... Uh, just got to love it. Okay, uh, the Infallible Word Show. We have a, a place where I'm teaching through the Word. It's not about Mormonism. It's about the Bible, and it airs on Monday night at 9.30, and then replays on Friday nights at 8.30 on TV20. We hope you tune in. And finally, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that we're on the air. We thank you for this show and for the opportunity to talk about you relative to uh, Mormonism and church history this year. And we pray for your spirit and the people watching. In Jesus' name, amen. In a speech by Ezra Taft Benson in 1985 called Worthy Fathers, Worthy Sons, he said, Good fathers teach their sons, and good sons listen and obey. I would tend to agree with this statement. The LDS Church places a lot of emphasis on the importance of fathers and mothers in the home in teaching their children. It's very important that they, they'll say that, fathers, if you choose to do something that goes against the commandments, you're going to pay the price and the actions of your children. In an effort to be consistent with this teaching, we may assume the same rules hold true for the father of Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that this father uh, greatly influenced the makeup of this son. And we're going to talk about him tonight. Before Joseph Smith Jr. was born in the winter of 1805, the foundation for Mormonism was well established, in part by his paternal grandparents and his parents. His father, Joseph Smith Sr., who I'm going to call Joseph Sr., and his mother, Lucy Max Smith, had 11 children together, nine of which survived. Joseph Jr., who became the prophet, who I'll refer to as Joseph Jr., was in the middle. They had Grandfather Smith, who was Joseph Sr.'s father. He was, his name was Asael, and he was a very uh, successful man, extremely opinionated on the subject of religion, God, liberty, and individual rights. Asael did not like organized religion much and was staunch in his universalist opinions. At the same time, he longed to see the primitive church of Jesus Christ restored back to the earth. Contrary to what Jesus and the Bible state, the universalist doctrines believe that everyone will be saved. Everyone. Grandfather Asael passed his ardent beliefs on to Joseph Smith Sr., who in turn passed them on to his son, Joseph Jr. Such thinking would play an enormous role in the thought and theology that Joseph Jr. would present as a way of Mormonism later on down the road, and I'm going to show you why as we go on. 
According to the public records of December 6, 1797, many years before Joseph Jr. was born, Grandfather Assail, Joseph Sr., and his brother, Jesse, attached their names to the founding charter of the Universalist Society in Tunbridge, Vermont. This was the only organized religion Joseph Smith Sr. would ever join, except for his son's church a number of decades later. Universalism is essentially anti-sectarian, means anti-church, because all churches are true and all churches are not true. It doesn't matter because everyone will be saved. Remember, universalism was the only religion Joseph Smith Sr. Uh, would ever join beside his own son. That's a very important thing to remember. This is important because he refused to touch any religion that did not meet his personal specific requirements. So what I'm saying is Joseph Smith's father, who headed up this family of uh, nine surviving children, he would not accept any religion that did not meet his specific universalist, uh, primitivist views. Remember that. So guess what his middle, large in stature son provided him? He provided his father with a religion with which he could agree. In addition to being a universalist, Joseph Smith's grandfather, Assail, also believed, like many early Americans, that America, this country, was set apart by God as a special place of liberty and peace and a place for the freedom of religious oppression. Later, this theme would appear in Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon, which he said he translated from Golden Plates. In 1 Nephi 2.20, Nephi, who was uh, in Jerusalem at the time, said that God said, Ye shall be led to a land of promise, talking about America, yea, even a land which I have prepared for you, yea, a land which is choice above all other lands. I propose to you that these attitudes came not by way of revelation, but by way of a son fulfilling and satisfying the uh, needs and the input of his grandparents and parents on him over the years. In the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, it quotes Joseph Smith as saying this, It is a love of liberty which inspires my soul, civil and religious liberty to the whole of the human race. Love of liberty was diffused into my soul by my grandfathers while they dandled me on their knees. Hand in hand with the Smith's patriarchs' universalist attitudes in the belief that America was set apart by God for the true religion and a land of liberty, they also believed that the Church of Jesus Christ would someday be restored to the earth. This movement which was embraced by not a few people at the time, was known, as I've said, as the Restorationist or Primitivist Movement. Alexander Campbell and a host of other names believed in this Restorationist Movement, and it was a popular theme at the time when Mormonism was established. So before Joseph Jr. was uh, even born, the Smith men, Assail and his father, believed that it would be through the Smith family that the truth of Jesus Christ would be restored back to the earth. Listen to this quote by George Q. Cannon, Apostle of the Church, who writes in Life of Joseph Smith the Prophet. He says that a sale says, It has been borne upon my soul that one of my descendants will promulgate a work to revolutionize the world of religious faith. Okay? The last time young Joseph the prophet, Joseph Smith Jr., saw his paternal grandmother, a sales wife, 
She communicated to him that he was a special boy who had a special work that he must do for God and that he must always follow the teachings of his father and mother so he would be prepared when the time came for God to call him to accomplish the work he was destined to perform. Do you see the stage that was set for this child when he came in? The grandparents were setting the stage for him before he probably even knew to talk. They thought that this church was going to come through their family and they picked Joseph as the one. From a very young age, Joseph Jr. had it instilled that he was destined to perform this for God. Listen to what Brigham Young says in Journal of Discourses 7289 relative to the Smith's family in God's work. The Lord has his eyes upon him, Joseph Smith, and upon his father, and upon his father's father, and upon the progenitors clear back to Abraham, and from Abraham to the flood, and from the flood to Enoch, and from Enoch to Adam. He, talking about God, watched that family and that blood as it circulated from its foundation to the birth of that man. That sounds like a genealogy of Jesus. That sounds like the genealogy of a savior, all right? And he's saying that this was on Joseph Smith's family, Joseph Smith's father. B.H. Roberts, church historian, wrote that Joseph Jr.'s grandfather, Asael, told the would-be prophet as a boy that God, quote, has brought us into the land of peace and liberty. He then went on, quote, I believe he, God, is about to bring all the world into the same beatitude in his own time and way. And I believe that the stone that is now cut out of the mountain without hands spoken by the prophet Daniel and has smitten the image upon his feet by which all monarchical and ecclesiastical tyranny will be broken into pieces and there shall be no place found for them. This is a quote talking about this stone that's going to be cut out of the mountain without hands in the book of Daniel. Guess what? Anytime you talk to a Christian, that stone represents Jesus Christ rolling forth throughout the earth. Mormons take it as to be Joseph Smith's church cut out and rolling forth. Anytime you look at a quote, even today by Gordon B. Hinckley, it's the church, not Jesus. It's the church, and it always has been, and they reinterpret that passage in Daniel as being a church and not the Lord. Later, as the prophet of the church, Joseph Smith himself echoed these sentiments taught by his grandfather when he said, listen to this quote by him, I... Calculate to be one of the instruments in setting up the kingdom of Daniel by the word of the Lord. And I intend to lay a foundation that will revolutionize the whole world. It will not be by the sword or the gun that this kingdom will roll on. All the power of truth is such that, listen to this, all nations will be under the necessity of obeying the gospel. Okay? That's a powerful statement that is centered in authority and power, okay? From a child in review, Joseph was taught the primitive religion from God was taken from the earth, meaning that when Jesus said he would establish his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, that Jesus was wrong, that it was taken from the church and the gates of hell did prevail. He was taught that America was a sacred place of freedom set apart for this restored gospel to come forth, this primitivist religion. And he was taught that he would, in fact, be the one to initiate this great religious event by his father and grandfather. The impact and influence from Joseph Jr.'s paternal side was powerful and obvious. But what else do we know about his father besides these things that they expected? 
1802, three years before Joseph Jr. was born, Joseph Smith Sr. invested a lot of money, almost all the family's money, into an overseas ginseng business. That business failed, not on his part from what history says, but because of an unscrupulous business partner who took the money and ran. This left the Smith family financially destitute where it remained for the rema- where it stayed for the remainder of their lives. For the next 20 years, the Smith family, these, these nine surviving children and two parents, struggled greatly to exist. Two years after the ginseng debacle, Joseph Smith Jr. was born. In my studies, I've come to the conclusion I truly believe that Joseph Smith and his siblings were loved by his parents. I believe that they were a cohesive family that stuck together. I think they were close. I don't think they lacked attention. I don't think they were treated with indifference that happens in more dysfunctional families. But I think that they were dysfunctional in a sense of how they saw the religious world around them. And I think that's proven by the way the father came out and the things he did relative to the mothers, which we'll explain next week. I think that the family unit played a significant role in the makeup of Joseph as the prophet and supporting him in his mission to reform the religious world. With the exception of his uh, few years in Pennsylvania with Emma as he was translating the Book of Mormon and his time spent in Liberty Jail, Joseph Smith did not leave from very close proximity to his mother and father. After the ginseng affair, history teaches us that Joseph Smith's father entered a long period of self-doubt, which included alcohol abuse and a penchant for get-rich-quick schemes. Joseph Sr. also passed on the legacy of treasure-seeking and reliance on magic to his middle son, who later introduced himself as the prophet and used those magic terms to form the church he did. Um, Joseph obviously observed the traits going on in their family. He could see the the problems he had on his paternal side. A father who struggled with self-doubt. A family of nine stuffed into small quarters that had no money and trying to make ends meet. A father who was religiously uh, very out there and uh and or spiritually out there a mother who is religiously out there and and alcohol being a problem in splitting the family and we're going to talk more on that as we go so in addition to seeking buried treasure with alcohol problems and a passionate attitude against all organized religion of the day joseph smith senior was also a visionary man his wife lucy joseph smith's mom reports that her husband experienced seven impactful dream visions Uh, well before Joseph Smith ever had his first vision. He had his dream visions when Joseph was about six years old. Because of time constraints, I won't go into what all those dream visions were, but I will share one with you that is very important. Now, you got to try to imagine the setting, which I always say. Here is a large, poor family crowded in a small house. In rural America, it's snowing outside, and Joseph Sr. has probably tied one on by this time of the evening. The children want a story, and they look to their parents who are sitting there, and maybe they know that the mother has some religious stories, and the father has these mystical stories, and, um, and they say, you know, we want to have a story from you, and there's no television, and there's no radio, and they can see their parents are kind of happy to be with them, and so they start sharing one of daddy's dreams. And this is what the dream is, okay? Lucy Smith records this. Father Smith finds himself in a deserted field that represents the world. 
He follows a path that takes him to a crystal stream of water. He walks up to find the source and found the most beautiful tree he had ever seen in the midst of a valley. The tree bore fruit whiter than snow. Its taste was delicious beyond description. He himself said, I can't eat it all alone. I must get my wife and children that they might partake with me. And he brought his wife and seven children that they ate the fruit and praised God. And the other side of the valley was a spacious building with many doors and windows filled with people who were dressed in fine clothes. They began to point at Joseph and his family with great contempt. At this time, he understood that the fruit they were eating was the pure love of God and fills the hearts with those with love who keep his commandments. His guide told him to get all the children because not all of them were there. And then they go on and tell more and more of this story. The interesting thing to note is the comparative that is found in the book called the Book of Mormon. If you turn to 1 Nephi chapter 8, you'll find that Lehi, the father of the, of the family that leaves Jerusalem and comes to the Americas 600 years before Christ, says in verse 2, Behold, I have dreamed a dream, or in otherwise I have seen a vision. In verse 10 it says, And it came to pass that I beheld a tree whose fruit was more desirable to make one happy. Verse 11, And it came to pass I did go forth and partake of the fruit thereof, and I beheld that it was most sweet above all I had ever tasted. Yea, I beheld the fruit that it was white, exceeding the whiteness that I had ever seen. Verse 12, And I partook of the fruit, and it filled my soul with great joy. I began to be desirous that my family should partake of it also. Verse 13, as I cast my eyes about, I sought to discover my family. Verse 20, behold, I saw a straight path, and I looked across by the head of the fountain and unto a large and spacious field. Verse 26, and I cast my eyes about and beheld on the other side of the river a great and spacious building. And it stood in the air high above the earth, filled with people, old and young, male and female, all manner of dress exceedingly fine, and they were in an attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers at those who were eating the fruit. Can you see the influence the father has on the son when it comes to even the, the, the conjuring up of the Book of Mormon, which the father had that vision himself when Joseph Smith was six years old, and now it finds its way into the text of the Book of Mormon. Okay? Remember, according to Lucy, that this dream was real. Now, some people will say that Lucy made this up and she applied her son's skills to the husband later on. That would make Lucy a liar and it would lend to her ability as a mother. And I don't think that was the case. I just call this some real parental influence over a visionary young man. We cannot legitimately conclude our short study of the paternal influences on Joseph Jr. without talking about magic. Before we do, I'd like to read a couple of verses or passages from the Bible which, are better, which were very well known at the time of Joseph Smith's magic dabblings. All right, I'm going to read just two. Leviticus 19.26 Ye shall not eat anything with blood, neither shall you use enchantment nor observe times. Deuteronomy 18.10-12 Listen to what the Lord said back to the children of Israel and Bible-believing people understood well. There shall not be found among you anyone who maketh his son or daughter to pass through the fire. That was a pagan ritual. Or that useth divination. Or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. For all these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. 
there's something very important to consider when you listen to these biblical passages and you look at the activities of the Smith family when they dabbled in magic. And the thing that you have to ask yourself is, what did the Christians think of dabbling in magic? And I can tell you that if they were Bible-believing Christians, they wouldn't touch that stuff, no matter how rural, rural or folksy their lives were. They knew the Bible. They knew what it said about those things. And they wouldn't bring those practices into their life. They trusted the Word. Okay, Joseph's father was quoted as saying in 1837 regarding magic, I know more about money digging than any man in this generation, for I have been in the business for more than 30 years. Okay, so this says he started getting into money digging when Joseph was uh, about five years old. Money digging was a term used to divine or seek for buried treasure using stones, rods, or visions. It was a fairly common practice among the folk in rural areas of the country, but there is also a shame that was associated with it, similar as a shame would be associated today with someone who might turn to lottery to try to make their living, or, or gambling, or reading palms, that we might look at those people and say, wow, you're, especially if you call yourself a Christian, that would really not be in line. I think that that was the way they kind of looked at it as I read. Lucy Max Smith tries to defend their using of Abrac, drawing magic circles and soothsaying uh, in her biography. She quotes those things by saying that they continued to work as a family and not for anybody to get the impression that they became lazy because of their magic practices. I think it's also telling that that phrase I just gave you from her uh, biographical sketches was removed from the final narrative draft. Um, before I open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, let me conclude with the facts which you should consider in light of Mormonism on Joseph Smith's paternal influence. One, before Joseph Smith was born, the Smith men believed the true church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was lost from the earth. They believed this true church undoubtedly represented some form of universalism where everybody should be saved. So when the true church was restored back to the earth, Joseph Smith's father demanded that it would ha have some form of universalist traits in it, like everybody goes to a certain kingdom and hell is not a real place. The grandparents and parents of Joseph Smith, this church, would come through the Smith family, and later they would teach Joseph, young Joseph, that this church was going to come through him. The father rejected all organized religions, all of them except the one his son produced later, which pleased him. His father taught Joseph to trust in magic practices. These practice, practices became part of the methods he used to introduce the church uh, uh, and part that he operated from most of his life. Joseph Jr.'s father was a visionary man who had dreams, passed those dreams on to his son, and at least influenced, enough of, uh, influenced him enough that some of those dreams made their way into this book that is supposed to have been written uh, you know, 600 years before Jesus was even born. Uh, relative to the beginnings of Mormonism, I think we can all agree with Ezra Taft Benson that good fathers do in fact influence their sons, and good sons do in fact listen and obey their fathers. This is exactly what Joseph Smith did, and this is one little element of how Mormonism began. We're going to go to the phones. The phone lines are jammed, of course, not just going off, and if you want to get through, please don't get discouraged. Um, Call and keep trying, and if you find a recording, it's okay. Just keep trying, and you will get through. We uh, are going to Brian on line two. 
Brian, you're on Heart of the Matter. How's it going? Hey, doing well. How are you? Doing pretty good. I just had a question for you. I've seen a, a couple episodes of your show. Um, I myself am a Mormon uh-huh. and uh, have been my whole life. Uh-huh. Um, wanted to see what happened uh, like after your mission. What made you change and then kind of what happened with that? Well, you know, it's probably good to review that. I cover that, you know, probably every fifth show someone calls who hasn't seen it. And, uh, you know, I could send you the book. It's, it would tell you the whole story. But for the audience who hasn't seen the show, uh, what happened, Brian, is I always knew myself to be a sinner in my heart. I knew that uh, even though I could outwardly play the part of a good Mormon and could accept uh, callings, I knew that whether in my mind or heart or hands, I was a sinner. And I couldn't reconcile myself with God who I read about in Scripture. And so one day I went to the side of the road at the promptings of a radio preacher and I asked God to change my life. And long story short, uh, I was born again miraculously. And that started this whole thing about trying to influence uh, the, the teaching of being born again to Mormons. And that's where it all began. All right. Like, did you believe that like, Mormons are born again as well? No, I don't believe that it's practice. I think there are Mormons who can be born again and are, but I don't believe that that teaching uh, comes through uh, and comes through to the members at large. And I don't think that they uh, grasp it the way the Bible teaches it. Mm-hmm. All right. Does that answer your question? What's that? Does that answer your question? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I just... Uh... Can we send you the book? What's that? Can we send you the book? Oh, um, I guess. I don't know. Uh... You don't know if you'll read it? Uh, not because of, uh, I don't know probably what you're thinking, but I mean, I myself uh, currently not a member in good standing, and I've served a mission, and yeah, and have gone away because of my own choices, but I still believe yeah. at heart that it's true. Well, of course you do, Brian. I mean, that's probably what you were taught. You went on a mission. You taught that to people. I mean, it's very natural for you to believe that, especially if you're disaffected, especially if you've fallen away because of your own sin. The question you should ask yourself, I'm not going to even talk to you about leaving Mormonism. Stay. If you want to stay, stay. Uh, go back and get reactivated if you want. But the thing you need to do is ask yourself, have you been born again? It was an imperative of Jesus to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And I can tell you from my experience and every Christian I know who've experienced it, there's no question. And you don't say, well, I'm trying or I think. I mean, it's a literal life-changing event where you know you are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. If you have that experience and you want to continue to be LDS and you're Whatever, you do that. But I'm just telling you, search out to examine your heart before a perfect God and find out, do you need a new heart? Do you need a new spirit? Have you been born again? I believe, uh, I believe we all like, can be born again. I believe that any Mormon can, and I believe that the Mormon Church uh, teaches that. I think people are confused on the terms uh, saved by grace. Yeah. Um, saved by grace is true. We're all saved by the grace of God and by the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay. We're only saved through Jesus Christ, but I don't believe that gives us a free pass to be lazy the rest of our life. We still have to be obedient to His commandments. You know what, you know what Brian? I love it when LDS call this show and say that because I have never met a Christian who thinks that it's a free pass to be lazy and to do whatever they want. Never. And I, you know, I've been uh, coming to the Christian church for a while now, 
And I mean, everyone I seem to speak to, I, we're, I'm surrounded right now by people who volunteer their time to do this show. I'm surrounded by people who are out there on the streets, you know, handing tracks to people in the cold and in an embarrassment. I have yet to meet a convicted Christian who sits back on their laurels and doesn't work more. Like Paul said, hey, I work more for Christ now that I've come to know him. So what you're presenting is an LDS view of what Christians are. And it, the reason you have that view is because you haven't been regenerated and you don't understand what happens inside you once you have been born again by that spirit. Well, I understand, and I, I would agree to some point. I know, I just think that the misconception is that uh, the world thinks that, that Mormons are under the notion that they've been taught they have to work their way to heaven. Well, you just kind of admitted that in, indirect, in an indirect way. Whether you even know it or not, that's kind of what you just said. Because, because you do have to work your way to heaven, Brian. You can't accept Jesus Christ and his grace will save you. But save just means, hey, you're going to have a chance at a kingdom. If you want to live with God again, God the Father, you have to work. You have to pay your tithing. You have to go to that temple. You have to obey the Sabbath day. You have to do those things. And that is the work that you're adding to the cross. Do you get it? I... I don't believe that 100%. Like, uh, well, that's probably why you're not active in the church, because 100% you know it's probably not right and it's not working for you. You ought to come to find the Lord and it will change you, and then you'll see that stuff. Your eyes will open and you'll see how that stuff really doesn't play into your salvation experience. We got to keep it going, though, buddy. Hey, write me, email us, go to our site, www.bornagainmormon.com. We'll send you the book, whatever you want. Keep watching the show, though. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Michael on line three, a first-time caller. Michael, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, uh, thanks, Sean. I just wanted to say a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, the LDS Church, you know their doctrine is after you've done all that you can do, then kind of grace kicks in after you've done all that you can do on your own power and uh, your own merits. And, uh, and then again, like you said, that's adding to the cross, you know what I'm saying? After you've done all you can do on your own strength and on your own laurels and your own merits, then grace kind of kicks in to help you go the rest of the way. Yeah. And that's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that, um, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. In other right. words, it has nothing to do with you. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Right. So if anything you do, anything you do, plays any part in your salvation as far as works go, then you've got something to boast about when you stand in front of God. You say, hey, listen, I played my part, now you play your part and give me my salvation. Amen. And, um, and, so, and that's not the way it is, or otherwise it's not a gift, it's something that you earn. Hey, Michael, that yeah. is a great point. I'm glad you brought it up, brought it up for uh, another reason. When Sandra Tanner was on the show, I asked her to cover a story that was in the, the most recent church uh, manuals that Boyd K. Packer and how he explained salvation. And unfortunately, I didn't give her enough time to really explain it well. I mean, she explained it well, but it just wasn't enough time. And what she said is, Boyd K. Packer explains it like this. You have a debt. And it's a big debt you have to pay. And your friend steps in and he pays for your debt. Okay? And then uh, you think, well, okay, thank you. And then the friend turns around and says, now you pay me. <laughs> now you pay me. And that's the LD. And Boyd K. Packer, the Apostle of the Church, says that's our definition of how salvation works. Isn't that amazing? The Christian definition, of course, Michael, as you know, is that Christ comes in and takes that debt and he just says, you're saved. You know, and you will have faith to, on me. What? He's also able to keep us. 
He's able to keep us throughout our salvation. He's able to keep us in a right standing with God. That's right. The fact that he paid the price for our salvation, and that keeps us in a right standing with God throughout our lives. It's uh, faith which worketh by love. Once you get saved, you, you serve God because you love him. That's right. You're overwhelmed, you're overwhelmed by that sacrifice that he, that he made uh, for you on Calvary, and then you serve him out of love. It's faith which worketh by love. It's not faith which worketh by works. Michael, and you know what else I love? I love your accent. I mean, it sounds like I got a daughter in New York, and you sound like you know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm from Boston. I love it. I wanted to say something real quick about the magic is, you know, when, when Joseph Smith um, died in the uh, Carthage, Illinois, in the jail, yeah. well, he had a talisman in his pocket, and yeah. um, that's uh, some kind of stone that supposedly gives you power, um, and that's a form of witchcraft. And also... Um, he looked into the seer stone to translate the uh, Book of Mormon, and that's kind of like looking into a crystal ball almost, like looking into the seer stone. And I don't know, I guess uh, he looked into the crystal ball, and then the verse came up, and then he said the verse to Hiram. I don't really know. Maybe you could tell me exactly how it worked, but I think he saw the verse in the, in the seer stone, and then he told Hiram what the verse said. And, uh, or, uh, we're going we're gonna to Hiram, uh, what's the other guy's yeah. name that, that translated it? With? Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery. Hey. Told Oliver Cowdery, then Cowdery... Wrote it down, then he said it a second time or something, and he repeated it back to him. Hey, Michael. The next verse came up or something. Yeah, it's good stuff, but you know what? We're going to cover all that in depth. The Book of Mormon is going to take a number of weeks. Okay, and go gonna... ahead. You go on to someone else, and God bless you, and thank you so much for taking my call. Thank you. <laughs> okay. okay, bye. You know, if I ever get sick, they should call Michael and put him right here. He is awesome. That was great. Okay, let's go to Patrick. First time caller online, too. Patrick, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I, I'm from Orlando, Florida, and I just moved here, and I didn't know anything about Mormons until I got here. And a couple came to my house, and they were just talking about different things, and one thing they said was, you know, the church fell away. You know, and I was thinking, well, the Holy Christ sent the Holy Ghost, and it, it's been here ever since. It's, yeah. Uh, the gates of Hades has never prevailed against it because the Holy Spirit was here when Christ descended. That's right. And I'm African-American, and I heard that, you know, they didn't allow, that they believe that blacks are from the descendants of Cain. Yeah. And, and my thing is, well, if that's the case, Abel and Cain are brothers, and that makes Abel black, too. <laughs> so I just don't understand how they feel that Cain is... That black people are from the descendants of Cain and that we're cursed because we're dark-skinned. It just well, doesn't make sense. You know what? We have a show. Uh, it's on Priesthood. If you go to the website, uh, www.bornagainmormon.com, we have under-the-TV shows on our archives, everything from 2006. And there's a show where we go through and we explain exactly that whole uh, false thing about blacks and priesthood. And bottom line, I mean, I'm trying to be fair, but bottom line, it was just prejudice, and they just they just wanted to survive. It was a popular thing to pick on blacks uh, back then, and maybe even today. And they just kept it. Uh, they just kept it to survive as a church, and they changed it in 1976 with a revelation. But long story. That's a that's a long story short of the history with the black uh, uh, blacks and the priesthood. But you, what were you talking about before, the first thing? About the church falling away. Oh, you know, you make such a good point. Latter-day Saints, listen. You know, the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you. 
He promised and he sends the comforter, which comes and they speak in tongues like cloven fires coming. I mean, and the Holy Spirit is there. You make such a good point because we have the Holy Spirit. We don't need prophets and we don't need the church is not going to go away. The Holy Spirit didn't leave. Exactly. Great point, brother. Hey, thank you. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye bye. We're going to Nancy. Uh, We are going to Nancy. I think I know Nancy. First time caller from Oklahoma. Nancy is a big Sooners fan. Hey. Nancy, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Tonight. Thanks. Tonight is the night of accents. We got an Oklahoma Sooner accent going now. Really? Oh, no. My gosh. I sound like a hick. No, you don't. Okay. (laughs) My question is, um, why do you think uh, Joseph's parents chose him to be this person who's going to usher in this restored, supposed restored church? It's a really good question, and it ties into a couple things. One... One, Nancy, is Joseph was born with a call on his head, C-A-U-L. And in folklore and back in the rural, rural, I can't say that word, rural woods, that was a sign of a child with real special powers or real special luck. And so when he was born with that call, in fact, I have a reference which I'm going to share later. They, they refer to that. You were born from the time you were born with that call around your They called it a veil around your face. And it was this sign that he was something. And, uh, you know, children are born with uh, those on their heads all the time. But they viewed that as something. So it's a physical thing? It was a physical thing, yeah. Okay. That's one thing that probably did it. Another thing could have been just his propensity. He was a charming uh, adult. I'm sure he was a charming, charismatic child. They probably liked him, and uh, you know, they just kind of started heaping it upon him. His older brother, uh, they were not so uh, charismatic. Joseph may have been, and so they just combined the, the call, the belief that on his head, the belief that uh, it was going to come through the Smith family, and the fact that the kid was gregarious and, and smart, and they just maybe started heaping it upon him. Maybe like a family that sits around a table, and, and there's a child who's really good in, in soccer amidst all the others, and they say, you know, you're going to go to the Olympics someday. Maybe it was something like that, and they, it just kind of came to him. But that's a really good question. It's just interesting. Just kind of, you know, when I was watching this, as you were talking about it, it was just kind of dawned on me. I'm like, well, why him? You know yeah. what? You know, I, I, and I, I wonder what his other, what his siblings thought about that. You know, if that was kind of like, well, hey, I can't believe you're, you know, there was great this kid, not me. <laughs> yeah. There was sibling rivalry. rivalry. Uh, Dan Vogel talks about that. There's speculation even at times that some of the shots shot at Joseph were from his brothers when they got older. Uh, there's some things like that, but that's all speculation. Of course, the LDS will say, you know, Joseph, his parents knew he was the one because of the spirit told him and, and all that. But uh, there's evidences that prove there was more to it than something like that. Interesting. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm challenging myself. I, I think I'm going to, because um, I'm related distantly to Joseph Smith. I, I'm, I'm related to Lucy Mac Smith. Um, we, we, I guess I, I could say Joseph Smith and I share the great, same grandparentage. Huh. And I'd like to really go back and see if I could study on what my grandparents believed and you know, because they came, they came over on the, the Mayflower, so wow. it's interesting. I'd, well, I'd like to understand why they you know, went into this folklorish, witchcrafty, occultish type belief. Let me give you, know? you some. Let me give you some books, Nancy. Uh, re- really quick. 
Okay. D. Michael Quinn's uh, Joseph Smith and the Magic World View. Uh, of course, Bush, Bushman's book, Who is LDS, gives you insights into that. And Dan, Dan Vogel's book gives you insights, uh, uh, The Making of a Prophet, into all that. And they're all referenced, primary source material, and you can read it and, and just understand exactly why it will help you a lot. All right. Okay, thanks for calling, Nancy. Thank you. All right, Boomer Sooner. Bye. Bye-bye. Sorry, Idaho fans. Uh, she had to get that in. All right, we're going to line two, Moriko. Hey, how you doing, Sean? Hey, doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing quite fine, actually. I'm calling because I I, I don't know if I misunderstood you, but I think you said that uh, the church or uh, the Mormons believe that um, uh, that the church is the rock, the symbolism of the rock, and not Christ. Yeah, the gospel. And and that hell was prevailed against um, Christ. Is is that exactly what you said? Yeah, I said that they have to believe. Uh, just by virtue of the fact that the gospel had to be restored, that hell did prevail against the church and that priesthood authority, as they call it, and uh, believers fell away into apostasy. So that would mean the gates of hell did uh, prevail against the church that Jesus established. And they always speak of that rock rolling forth as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, fulfilling and, I mean, filling and consuming the earth. Well, that's kind of, that's actually quite disturbing. I don't mean it to be disturbing. It's disturbing to me. And I sat here and I contemplated for a while, and I don't have my church handy right now. Yeah. You know, and I asked God, I said, what can I call and ask him? And the one thing that came to me and, that, you know, he spoke to me, he said, well, when I recite the Lord's Prayer every day, uh-huh. you know, when I do recite it, uh-huh. you know, at the very end of that prayer, I, I ask him to deliver us from evil. Now, how can I expect my Lord in Christ to deliver me from evil or from hell if he hasn't already prevailed against this. So I think that's something that some people should think about. Hey, it's a good point. Hey, listen, Mariko, is it Mariko? Mauricio. Mauricio. Hey, are you a Catholic? No, I'm a born-again, I'm born-again Christian myself. Oh, it's, I just thought because of the Lord's Prayer. But that's great. Great to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in. All right, sounds good. Thanks. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Barnett, first-time caller from Hooper, Utah. Barnett, you're on Heart of the Matter. How you doing? I had a couple questions about the Mormon religion. Yes. And uh, I'm from a long line of Mormons, Uh and my parents were married in the temple, and my mom talks about the secret handshakes and all the secret stuff that goes on in the temple, and the secret names and uh, the bonnets that they wear and stuff. Yeah. And I, I was wondering if you could tell me a little more about that. No. I'll tell you why. Uh, I have no problem of talking one-on-one with somebody about it. I'll talk to, tell them anything they want to know. You can get it online. But the problem is, is there are people who are willing to listen to the show who are LDS. And they have been taught from a young children that what goes on in there is sacred. Whether it's sacred or not to you or I is really irrelevant. The problem is they believe it is sacred. And so I'm going to respect that and not talk about those things because I don't want to offend people in order to to influence some. I think I'm going to do better with honey than vinegar. And so I just have to avoid those questions because they're really not going to do anything for the LDS. We talked about masonry. We talked, we have shows all about the temple rites, but the specifics I'm not going to cover. I know them, but it just won't do anything for bringing uh, people to want to listen to the show. Does that help? Yeah, I understand that. And I, I really respect that because not a lot of people will you know, sit down and, and respect somebody else's rights. And I think that's really outstanding for you. 
Oh, thanks. Thanks for the call. Thanks for watching the show. Hey, I think what you're doing is great. Keep on trucking. All right, man. Thanks. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to Quincy and Ogden, Lime 1. Quincy. Sean, how are you? Long time no here. Long time. How you doing? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. I just wanted to make a little comment. Um, sometimes I think uh, people get confused when we talk about that we're born-again Christians. Yeah. You know, and I, I think um, I like the way it says in the Greek when it says we're uh, born from above. Yeah. Oh, you've brought this up before to me, haven't you? I might have. I might have. It's been a long time since we talked. Yeah, born from above. I like that, too. Yeah, we're born from above because when we're born in this flesh body to participate in this salvation plan, uh -huh. that we all of a sudden have a change of heart. Uh -huh. And we ask the Lord to come into our heart. And he gives us that grace and it's unmerited favor. It means we can't do anything to earn this. It is given to us as a gift of love. And it is a conditional thing because he doesn't want our sacrifices anymore. He wants our love for his love. Right. And we do those works out you, of love. You're right. That's the requirement or, or, you know, or we want to earn points, but we do it out of love. Yeah. And, and people, you know, they think all these words, when you open up your word of, your, of the word and you're reading that word, that's a work. When you're raising your children in a Christian way, in a, a God-fearing way, it's a work. Yeah. You know, people get so caught up and they think it's a big show, and it's not. It's just leading your life towards a heart, towards a, to, to be a heart of God, towards God. Always good points by you, Quincy. Thank you for sharing. I want to say on that thing of born-again Christian versus born from above, I think the reason people will often say I'm a born-again Christian is because it's, it's kind of an answer to people who say, well, I'm Christian, you know, and it just kind of, kind of differentiates between just being a Christian because that's the church I go to versus having that regenerative experience, and so they tie it into the title. But your point is really well taken. All right, son. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. We are going to Jake, first-time caller, line four. Jake, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. How are you? Hey, good. How are you? Good. Hey, I've been uh, I've been watching the show um, as regularly as I can, and I just got to thank you. Um, you've really, you know, begun to open my eyes. I'm kind of at a crossroads myself. And uh, you mentioned something a couple weeks ago about blood atonement. Uh-huh. And I was wondering, um, I've been a member of the church my whole life, um, but I'm, you know, like I say, I'm at a crossroads. I was, I'm ex-military, and uh, there's, you know, a whole line of issues there, but uh, um, yeah, I, I just was wondering what what it is. Okay. Hey, Jake, we did we send you a book recently? Um, yeah, I just haven't received it yet. Okay, you should get it soon. I'm glad you called. Hey, listen, uh, Blood Atonement, really quick. Uh, bottom line... Latter-day Saints do not believe there are, they do not believe that the atonement of Jesus Christ covers all sin. They believe there are some sins that require you to shed your own blood. And uh, murder is one of them. If, and, and in fact, Utah was one of the last states of the Union to get rid of, and I, I think they've still got, I think they got rid of it, but they still may have it, the firing squad. G Gary Gilmore Gary Gilmore at the point of the mountain was, was uh, killed by firing squads so that he could shed his own blood because of the murders he committed at a gas station a number of years before. They, oh, wow. So they believe you have to shed your own blood to even have a possibility 
of gaining some kind of forgiveness. It's vague. I don't hear it talked about much more any, anymore, but they haven't renounced, like polygamy, listen to this, like polygamy, they have not renounced the practice. And so you have to be very careful. There's a, and while I have you on the phone, Jake, I'm sorry to kind of use your call as a segue, but there's a four-part series coming out on PBS that says that it's going to clear all the ignorance that people have about Mormonism, especially about polygamy, and they're going to show how it's just not an issue anymore, and blood atonement might work its way in there too. And I want you to know it's just propaganda and spin for the church as a PR tool, and it's just not true. Okay. Appreciate your call. Anything else? Um, well, just uh, keep up the good work, and I would love to be able to, to maybe meet you sometime. I know I have a lot of other questions. Um, like you say, you know, I was in the military, and there's some things that that happened between me and the church because of my um, because of my past in the military, and, and that's uh, that's a whole other story, though. But I would love to to get together with you and talk to you about some things. I have a ton of questions. So. Oh, Jake, 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 email me, and we'll uh, we'll see if we can get together. I'm up here every week. All right, man. Thanks for the call. You bet. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Robert, first-time caller on line two. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter. Got to turn that TV off, brother. Hey. How you doing? I'm <laughs> doing well. All right. Hey, I wanted to uh, see if you could tell the people, most, most LBS believe that Joseph was kind of uh, uneducated, but I was under the impression that his parents were teachers are well-educated, and then they taught Joseph Smith very well, so he was pretty educated, and so that's why he can fabricate a lot of this stuff at the same time. Well, there's a, there, there's a great difference between formal education and intelligence. Uh, you can find some of the, the, the best educated people in the world who just aren't very smart, and you can find some extremely intelligent people who have little or no formal education. And, uh, and Joseph was the latter. He was extremely intelligent. They paint him as this country hayseed who had no education. And that's true in the sense that when you read the early writings, uh, they're pretty bad. I mean, they, it sounds like they were written by, by a hee-haw script. They are so bad in the way he, he wrote. Uh, but... Uh, so it, that doesn't bode well for the idea that his parents taught him proper English and things. Uh, that came about over time, and, but he was extremely intelligent. And he, uh, I just call him the greatest religious synthesizer of all time because he could pull religious ideas and put them together and spin them and make them make sense. Richard Bushman says he can make the mundane heavenly. You know, he could take anything and that he was a religious... Uh, like genius, he calls him a religious genius who could, you know, look at anything and just make this whole theology from it, and that's what he did. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I also had a question about the the gold plates. Doesn't it say that the the gold plates um, were like sixty to eighty pounds, but the actual what gold, the properties of gold they'd weigh like two hundred pounds from those dimensions. Yeah, the, the properties of gold were uh, very heavy if they were solid gold plates. The LDS Church uh, says now that they were an alloy that had the appearance of gold. So they were uh, had a little gold color mixed in with, uh, I don't know, balsa wood, made them light and you could run with them. I have no idea what they say they're made out of now, but they've <laughs> changed it from being gold plates, which were impossible to lift, 
to another. And by the way, I want to say this. At Utah Lighthouse Ministries at Sandra Tanner, Tanner's Bookstore, they have uh, lead plates, which are like a third or, or two-thirds of the weight of gold. Gold weighs, weighs so much more. Lead plates there, the size and dimensions that Joseph said the plates were. And I had trouble lifting those things, let alone run around the room with them. Gold would have just been prohibitive. So what they've said that is now that that doesn't work, they're going to an alloy. Didn't that change the doctrine then? Yeah, you know, but they're progressive. They just... They come to new understandings, spin here, spin there. I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm picking on the LDS, but that's what happens when it comes to facts that don't fit uh, the truth. They just spin it around, and that's exactly what they've done. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Sean. Great call. Thanks so much. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. We're going to Jason on line three from Bountiful. Jason, you have one and a half minutes. Hey, I got a question. Um, how come the Mormons, they copy the um, inside temples? They make it look like uh, like they came from the Jews. They the Jews have the same thing that the Mormons do. What do you mean? Like, for instance, the bulls with the water that Moses came up with and the curtains and um, stuff like that, like inside the temple, how you walk in. Yeah. Actually, uh, is, it, is it Jake? Jason, J.S. Yeah, Jason. Actually, uh, the, the Temple of Israel uh, was very different in the way it was constructed in dimension Right. And in its three parts, being one temple, it had an outer court, inner court, and holy of holies. You don't have those in LDS temples. Oh, because they had this thing up in the Bountiful Temple up here up on the hill where they had this thing with these gold, uh, brass bowls, and they're holding, like, um, I can't remember what it's called right now. Oh, lavers? Yeah, they yeah. copy that. A lot, of, a lot of the stuff that the Mormons are doing, they're copying from the Jews. And I, I, for real, it's just, you know, they're... Joseph Smith got it. He had to got these ideas from the Jews and the Muslims. Oh well, sure. And 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 if he got it from the Jews, then we could we could say that it was that part was was true. Like I said, he's a great synthesizer of religion. But when I was fourteen, fifteen years old, I had questions the same questions he did. That wasn't even influenced on me. I had no idea like these other gods and stuff. I was fourteen, fifteen years old thinking of that. Nobody influenced me with that. I came up with that on my own. Like, what are, What are you doing now? I'm watching you. No, but I mean with your life. Are you a Christian? Um, I'm Mormon, but I'm, I haven't been to church for years and years. Hey, stay on the line. Let us get your address. Let us send you our book, and let's talk to you about uh, some things as we carry on the right, conversation. But really quick with Cain. What's that? Really quick with Cain. I, I can't. We got 40 seconds left. All right, because I had a good one with, with it. Oh, Call back look. or email me. All right. All right, brother. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Remember, Heart of the Matter is on our website at www.bornagainmormon.com. You can also watch The Infallible Word, which comes on Monday nights at 9.30 and Friday nights at 8.30 here on KTM uh, WTV 20. We appreciate your calls and your patronage. We appreciate your prayers. We uh, pray God's Spirit with you and to seek out these things that we've talked about. I'm not the authority. I make mistakes, but the facts are there. And especially turn to the Word of God. God bless you. See you next week.